You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. The wave of anti-Asian hate crimes over the past year have largely been attributed to blaming the Chinese for the spread of the coronavirus. However, Asian Americans have experienced hate, social injustice, and discrimination since they started immigrating to the U.S. I've invited Richard Chen onto the podcast to talk about this history and some of the major events that have galvanized Asian Americans in the past. Richard is creator of StopAAPIHate.us, board member of Asian American Action Fund, and founding member of the Facebook group Asians Now, which is a Facebook group of Asian diaspora for social awareness. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thanks, Felicia. Great. Um, so yeah, and there's been a lot of uh, rise in hate crime recently. A lot of it has been associated with the coronavirus, but we know that racism and a lot of the social injustice experienced by Asian Americans is nothing new. Unfortunately, it's something that's existed since the beginning of time. And I wanted to invite you to talk about this because this topic is really not covered in a lot of schools or textbooks unless you actually go and look for it yourself and take an Asian studies course. Agreed. And many Asian Americans themselves don't know it, including myself. So I'm happy to be here to help everyone learn. So can you tell me about, maybe we can start with yourself and uh, how did you learn about Asian American history and what motivated you? Uh, it's been a, since high school, I've always been interested and involved in current affairs and social awareness causes. And in the 90s, they involved cultural awareness councils of sort and cultural activities, not political. And through my early working history in the 2000s, I realized as the Obama administration came into power that the Asian American political representation was sorely underpowered and underrepresented. So that's when I joined the Asian American Action Fund media team to do writing. And that I found out was sorely lacking. It like so many Asian Americans had no idea of the history of exclusion, discrimination and underrepresentation and the disempowerment that's come through that. Mm -hmm. So I've since been on the board for 10 years to increase political representation for Asian Americans. But now this work includes way more than politics. Uh, so I'm also an AJA member for the media representation. I'm also on local boards for social and civic representation, and of course through work. So all of that has given, I hope, Asian Americans around me, including Taiwanese Americans, that voice to get their power that is American and deserve it and overdue. Right. And you recently started a site called StopAAPIHate.us. Can you talk a little bit about that and the motivation behind that? Yes. I nearly, I literally calculated 28 of 30 non-Asian friends outside our news silos did not know anything about the history of Asian discrimination, which led up into the Atlanta murders or shootings. And they literally did not have any animus or like discrimination, they just simply had no idea. So they were so surprised and shocked. So I started the site to make sure they knew what they could do, which is the thrust of the site, what things they can do to help the immediate situation because they are allies and they may not be Asian, but they can be helpful. And then also increasing the news throughput. So the history of why we got where we are and also 
why there is actual harm, even though so many Asians buy into things like the model minority myth, which makes it seem like you're in power, but does not give you power. Can you talk a little bit more about that? About the model minority myth and what you just said, how it seems like you're empowered, but you're really not being empowered? Yes. So there is a notion that Asians are somehow more successful, affluent, intelligent, meritorious, or achieved because of their natural inclination to for work ethic. And although it is partially true, and we do deserve the recognition that comes with our such contributions in all sectors, we don't ask for power just because of our credentials. We are Americans because of this country's constitution, our naturalization or citizenship, and our commitment to the country, simply for existing as Americans, not because of something we achieved at work or hope to achieve or maybe have some valuable items or intellect or money assets for this country. There's nothing more to it than we are American. And so the modern minority myth does not hold up when it's trying to protect us from those powers that are protecting their own power and thus seek to disenfranchise us because we are a growing threat to their power. So things like xenophobia that's increasing now do not do rise and harm us even though the modern minority myth is there because just because you can achieve something at work doesn't mean you're not going to get the hateful perpetual foreigner stereotype. doesn't mean you're not going to be hated just because you got in the way of someone, whether it's due to road rage or walking rage or something. And so the modern minority myth is pernicious because it is partially true. We did have great rises in power and merit, but is not going to give us that security and place, rightful place in America. Um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there because part of it is related to immigration standards, right? Because there was a period in time where the U.S. policy encouraged uh, skilled workers, and so that probably contributed to the model minority myth. And then there's also like how this um, term is not a fair characterization of Asian Americans because Asian Americans is such a broad term. Even within Asian Americans, probably there's a certain percentage that are uh, make up the lowest 10% of the population in terms of socioeconomic status and education because there's a really broad range of Asian Americans, the countries and the backgrounds that they come from. Also, the model minority myth and perceived success of Asian Americans has been used as a point of comparison between people of color to drive a wedge between them. This really does a disservice to Asian Americans and is not a fair characterization of Asian Americans as a whole. When there are Asian Americans that fall in the lowest 10% in terms of income and educational level. Yes, complete diversity in Asian America. We have every type of human being across every economic, civic, political, and ideological stripe. So there's no way, uh, this term Asian American is largely thought to be uh, invented in the 1960s during the civil rights movement when the pernicious attack on allied African and black, now called black Americans, were so strong that the term Asian Americans gave a pan-Asian 
protection or identification to the Asian Americans who were experiencing similar discrimination at that time. It's hard to remember that there was such intense discrimination and exclusion for so many centuries from basically the 1960s immigration peak through all of the exclusion through the basically peaking in the 1910s to 1930s and slowly fading out through congressional acts over the 1920s through 1940s. And But this exclusion of Asian Americans from life gives us rise to this pan-Asian idea of Asian Americans. So while our identity as Taiwanese Americans is true, we are also Asian Americans, we are also Americans, et cetera, et cetera. So let's get into Can you, um, let's talk about like, uh, to give people like a general timeline of what Asian Americans have been through since they first started coming to the U.S.? Yes. So in the 1860s, when slowly over many decades, there had been a rise in Asian immigration, the earliest ones, traders and professionals that came to U.S. specially advising projects. Um, and then over that little amount of Asians, things like the Asiatic Exclusion League in the 1960s pushed through. They were the early lobbyists pushed through using that yellow peril trope. And after regular lynchings of Chinese in the West, many many acts. So in 1875, there's the Page Act, the first ever immigration act, which completely excluded Chinese women from entering the U.S. And then seven years later, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which eliminated all Asian immigration except narrow, tiny categories, those model minority ones, and then eliminated all naturalization by Asians. And then 10 years later, the Geary Act required Chinese to register and to prove your right to be in the U.S. No other category needed. And then in the 1880s to 1910s, you had this rise in explosive race riots. It's simply literal murder of Asians on the streets. And it's hard to remember, but there were so many decades of this kind of hundreds of whites attacking Chinese in and out of Chinatowns. Um, and then in 1898, the Spanish-American War ended and made the Philippines a... Um, a ruler of a rule of the U.S. So Filipinos actually got in because they are not subject to those exclusion laws, and then the Tide McDuffie Act allowed in uh, no more Filipino immigrants, so they closed that loophole. And then in 1917, Asiatic Zone Act eliminated all immigration from all the rest of Asia beyond East Asia. So basically, you have the U.S. shutting down for over almost half a century all immigration from Asia. And then eventually it got better. In 1924, the Immigration Act lets Asians in. And then here through the 1960s, when really finally all the laws were erased. So do not forget that the idea of legal immigration comes out of the exclusion of Asian Americans. Even though it targeted Chinese Americans in the beginning, basically all Asians have been eliminated specifically by law. In the past, uh, I wanted to point out that I believe that the Page Law and the Chinese Exclusion Act were probably the first immigration laws in the U.S. that specifically banned a particular racial group. Is that correct? Yes. They right. invented the idea that immigration had to be legal. You couldn't just walk off a ship and pass a medical test. In San Francisco, Angel Island, there was explicit regulatory-based exclusion of Chinese Americans, even after they invented legal immigration just to exclude the Chinese. So even where they have Chinese legally entering, they still found ways to stop and return them. 
Um, can we talk about this um, term yellow peril? What does that refer to? The idea that Asians are taking jobs from Americans, and this is very much older than, I mean, we can think of things in the past, but right now there's xenophobia about China rising, and that's preceded by you know the 1980s when there was the fear of the Japanese, and then in the 1960s when there was fear of the Vietnamese, and then there's before that the fear of the Japanese again, and before that in the 1860s through uh, 1910s of the Chinese taking jobs, the yellow peril has been applied to almost every category of Asian Americans. Right, and the term yellow peril dates back to the 1800s when Chinese laborers who were brought to the U.S. worked for less wages than whites. Moving along in the timeline, let's talk about what was happening in the 1900s when there was a mass burning of Chinatowns like the one in Santa Ana. Almost all Chinatowns on the West Coast from the 1880s through the 1910s had experienced some form of mass violence, including most of the large ones being burned in some fashion. So Santa Ana is particularly dramatic because it had suffered both a death and a public celebratory event around it. So the burning of Chinatowns in the West Coast can't be forgotten because it is American history. Whenever we hear the notion that this isn't America, we don't do this to our own people, this is the American history of burning almost all the Chinatowns in the West Coast, which were basically all the Chinatowns in the U.S. at that era. That's incredible. So can we talk a little bit more about what happened in Santa Ana as an example? Um, it's quite shocking to know that most of the Chinatowns on the West Coast have been burned down. Um, but let's take Santa Ana as an example, because you mentioned that there was a death and actually a celebration. What happened? Uh, so this is 1906, and at that time, there had been decades of exclusion of Chinese and generally Asians from civic and economic participation. Even though the laws, uh, so for many Chinese who are already in America, not only did they face the embarrassment of these immigration laws and the political hatred, they faced discrimination at all the levels that we think of blacks and other experiencing now, excluded from home buying, even excluded from renting, and thus the invention of these Chinatowns. And then these Chinatowns have been forced into the restaurants and the laundromats because they are not able to participate in other professional trades. And even for trade workers and wage workers, they're excluded from things like the union. So what we see today as the you know black suffering, which is exclusion, redlining, economic deprivation, and poverty. These were daily life realities for Chinese. So mm. in 1906, Santa Ana, which is already quite an impoverished region, mm. with the Chinatown that had atrophied because it just could not sustain these discriminations against Chinese economic participation, over a 1,000 local residents gathered to purposely burn this blighted part of the city down and it's explicit because it had blighted and thus it was seen as oh this is removing those terrible part of town so when we think of bad people and bad parts of town we were that person but not because of our own fault but because so many systems acted to disenfranchise and remove our participation in america so it is american history that we are treated like this 
And wasn't there uh, also part of the reason or excuse that they wanted to burn down Chinatown is that they claimed that there was a Chinese man who allegedly contracted leprosy and they didn't want that to spread, so they also used that as an excuse? Yes, and it has recurred with so many pandemics in the past. It, it's own episode almost. The first victim of many pandemics, including this leprosy, and the um, another previous influenza were a Chinese person in a Chinatown, and thus inaccurately attributed to just what we know today as if all Chinese brought the virus. Right, and it wasn't even necessarily confirmed that this man had leprosy, and he also did die before this the Chinatown burned down, but not of leprosy. Yeah. Yes, it's thought to be a very weak attribution. We can't let these history lessons be forgotten because the same odiousness recurs time and time again. So after these burnings um, the and the Asiatic Zone Act, which eliminates all Asia from Israel to Indonesia to Japan, all Asians coming in, there's a – in 1924, there is the Immigration Act. So that actually – further invents the idea of legal immigration. It introduces two things we know now, a national quota, so every country gets a quota, and a citizenship eligibility requirement to enter the United States, which is very big because, you know, CBP confirms this upon your entry on our shores. So this Immigration Act is custom designed. It seems as if it fixes all of the hatred that had been applied to Asians in the past, but it actually ensconces in power a system of ensuring the legal power of those who are already empowered, those who are already here, and a pathway for some to access it. At this time, uh, so uh, there are few exceptions. So Hawaii is a U.S. territory at this time in 1924. So it doesn't actually get subject to this immigration law until its 1959 statehood. So it experiences a large amount of Asian immigration, especially from the Philippines. And also, many Chinese immigrated to Puerto Rico, which is also a U.S. territory, after 1892. So they have a surprisingly large Chinese community to this day. The next major historical event would be the Pearl Harbor attacks in 1941, which led to Japanese internment camps being established as a reaction to the attacks. The Executive Order 9066, famously known as the Japanese-American internment camps is a great example of things that are already happening today again the idea that the government can ask its loyal governmental federal workers to do a seemingly innocent order so this is not actually a law but a executive order and in the u.s the executive has the ability to interpret law and execute it per the executive so an executive order in 1942 authorizes the Defense Department, which used to be called the Secretary of War, to make way for military areas to house Japanese Americans who are considered a national security threat, as if they had just been on the cusp of conducting sedition. So there's no law that's changed, but a executive order. So while Americans think that especially during the POTUS 45 era, that executive orders aren't so harmful, they can always be undone. It's sort of a easy to undo thing. 
the real life impacts are real. So when we exclude any category from the executive, things like the Japanese termite camps are easily possible without any changes to law. Over 100,000 people of Japanese descent were rounded up and put in these internment camps. And、um, I also want to mention that this includes second, third generation Asian Americans and naturalized citizens, and even、uh, some Japanese Americans who had been a part of the 442 elite U.S. military regiment. All these people were rounded up and put in the internment camps. There was no distinction. Yes, and it's worth noting that the number of Americans that were, it, like today, so diversity of Americans participated in so many different ways, from the odious, the you know military professionals who just took the order and did it because they're trained to, to the neighbors who looked after the Japanese Americans' properties while they were gone, to those who were on the street cheering them being removed. And making sure they were stayed right out of life, you know, the diversity of responses should be kept just as、uh, not as mere historical record, but so we remember how America can be so easily transformed into this hateful tool against us. I mean, the military is merely on a mission, and they're very, you know, the you know these sizable camps housing over 130,000 Japanese Americans were pretty. Put far out in the western intermountain areas, you know, Colorado, Utah, and far eastern California. So the efficiency with which it's done is remarkable and requires historical memory. And so, what's the next major event in the struggle with social injustice for Asians in America? What, what would you say was the next major event after the Japanese internment? Uh, there is a series of wars and interventions in Asia that foment a lot of awful feelings.、Uh, of course, Vietnam War had a conscription requirement in the United States, so you to this day can feel the amount of pain from our country in its you know overseas participation, which to this day causes a huge number of Asian American divides. Right? We all know that the political diversity of Asian Americans today, because of the forced immigration, because we were participating in the Vietnamese and Korean wars in affiliated conflicts, is diverse. We, you know, Asians that are elderly Vietnamese and older Filipinos and some stripes of Koreans are very, very conservative because they have the anti-communist, anti-socialist stripe because they were. So supportive of the pro-American causes that they were forced to flee or induced to flee Asia, and to this day they remain a you know a huge bulwark in Asian American political affairs. But for that era, these wars caused a lot of misunderstandings about Asia. So the immense anger at the military conscription and this overseas political exercise causes America to still be in that. Sort of mental state of not being sure how to heal the sin that it has committed. What's the next significant event in the timeline of social injustice experienced by Asian Americans? There is the the giant on the block, the Vincent Chin murder. Right, that was in 1982 in Detroit. Vincent Chin was a Chinese American man who was out on the night of his bachelor party when he was mistaken as Japanese by two white men who were auto workers and beat him to death. So this murder is particularly outstanding 
especially for people of our era, because it was such an explicit reminder that we are hated, maimed, and killed because of who we are. This is sort of a new feeling that's not gone away and has been revived with the Atlanta murders. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would be surprised like how many people actually don't know about the case of Vincent Chin. I only learned about this when I was in college, but not because I, and I'm embarrassed to say I did not, well, probably there wasn't, it wasn't available in my time, which tells you how old I am, that there weren't many options for Asian American studies. But through involvement with Asian American students groups, I learned about this, which is the first time I had ever heard of any kind of racially motivated hate crime. And the story is that at the time, there was a lot of sentiment against the Japanese automakers. And so Vincent Chin was mistaken for a person of Japanese descent, which is why these guys picked on him. And uh, he was actually Chinese. And uh, they beat him to death. And uh, what was the outcome? What Were these guys brought to justice? What happened to them? Well, to this day, these two perpetrators who were convicted have been ordered to pay somewhere between 37 dollars and $50,000. However, in reality, they are believed to have not paid any money and remain basically free because the laws at the time have no discrimination for things such as hate crimes. The concept of a hate crime came afterwards. And, you know, to this day, the hate crime law is inapplicable to such cases because there is no explicit racial animus stated, documented during the commitment of a crime. At that time, there was not even that. But this day, it still doesn't suffice to prosecute the Atlanta murders. So we see from Vincent Chin, how agonizingly slow and decrepit the legal system and judiciary, or judiciary can be for justice here. Yeah, I believe the perpetrators only got three months probation. Actually, I looked it up and one of the men did pay $50,000 to the Chin estate, while the other was ordered to pay $1.5 million, but never paid. Even today, I think it's very hard to define. We still don't have a clear definition of what is a hate crime, and there has to be a racial slur verbalized and then accompanied with the violence over to make it a hate crime, and there's like different definitions and so forth. But going back to the Vincent Chin case, I believe that uh, murder really galvanized the Asian American community. Can you talk a little bit about that and like the significance of this murder? This is the point at which we see the formation of huge numbers of Asian American organizations that did not previously have political or even civic or judicial participation. So, at, you know, at that time, there's barely the NAACP for color, all colored people, including Asian Americans. At, after Vincent Chin, we see explicit formation of many groups to explicitly work on Asian American justice. So um, ACLU forms a guild, National Lawyers Guild has one, and then we see things like Ace Americans for Justice. This means that there is lobbying for Asian Americans and allies to receive the time and attention to lobbying, because this is how America works, to get that sort of judicial reform. It takes decades, and it did take decades, to form hate crime legislation. But the idea that we have to fight politically and civically and on every front to get justice is rather new to Asian Americans at scale at that time. So now today, while we see this rise sharply in the past few months, 
Vincent Chen was the you know, last major such rise. After Vincent Chen, the next major point is the LA riots of 92. Uh, so Rodney King was a uh, gentleman who was videotaped as being beaten by the Los Angeles Police Department during a, a chase. And so this video immediately incites a series of violent riots in the many nights, over many consecutive nights. And because there were various systemic problems, the law enforcement was not able to stop the loss of life and property, although law enforcement is chiefly concerned with property. So the Koreatown, which was near the epicenter of the many riots, were forced into self-defense mode. So the community was, you know, while connected to the black community, immediately split apart. And so the concept, uh, the aggravation is that the Koreans are now in the black community, but then forced to defend their own businesses. Just to offer some further clarification on what happened with the LA riots, the video of Rodney King being beaten by police officers was recorded by a civilian and subsequently shown during the trial of the police officers. Then what happened was the jury acquitted the police officers of assault. That's what led to the riots starting on the day of the verdict. Also, there had been some long-standing tensions and distrust between the blacks and Koreans. A year before the Rodney King trial, a Korean shopkeeper had shot a black girl he suspected of shoplifting. There's such pain in such a lengthy history of so much violence against Asian Americans. And although it's not like the 1880s, we have to recognize that it's not over yet. Not by a long shot. I think people's eyes are being opened. Unfortunately, this pandemic has revealed a lot of things. Systemic racism, inequality in our society. It's given rise to a lot of things like the Black Lives Matter movement, the Stop AAPI or Asian Hate movement. Maybe it's not such a bad thing because you could say that it's time for us to do something about it and to be aware of things that were always there but didn't know were. Yes, everything that's happening today has a historical connection. The terms, the China virus terms, have been so many in the past. The ideas that we could just be good and we'll get power have been so long in the past. The idea that if we're just legally immigrating and stick to the law, we'll be safe is so old and has been tested and tried not entirely successfully. Could you point to some resources for people who want to learn more about the, the injustice or the history of Asians in America? What, could, what resources would you recommend to people? Uh, the easiest one is Wikipedia. There is actually, there are two articles. I believe one is called the Anti-Chinese Sentiment in the United States. And then the larger one is the Asian Immigration in the United States, which is largely Chinese uh, for the bulk of history. And so those two articles are very comprehensive about all of this. I wanted to thank you for your time and for giving a brief overview of the social injustices and discrimination that Asian Americans have experienced throughout their history in the U.S. Thank you, Felicia. And all listeners should know that you can do something from being educated to taking action. So thank you for listening and thank you, Felicia. I've been speaking with Richard Chen about the discrimination and social injustice that Asian Americans have experienced since they started immigrating to the U.S., 
To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There we'll list any related links. Talking Taiwan publishes new episodes on a weekly basis, and our work is made possible by the generous donations of our supporters and listeners. Help us to grow and continue producing engaging content by supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Talking Taiwan. We are offering supporters invitations to quarterly AMA or Ask Me Anything sessions with me, Felicia Lin, the host of Talking Taiwan, advanced notification of future guests, a Talking Taiwan tote bag, and other mystery gifts. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, tell a friend about us, or help others to discover Talking Taiwan by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.